Our scripture passage is Romans 7, verses 7 through 20. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sin beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is the word of the Lord. Made perfect sense, didn't it? (laughs) Uh, I said this in first service, I'll say it again. As I hear that scripture being read by a dear brother, I think, oh, pity the guy that's got to speak on this text today. So, and that would be me. So, it's a great passage though, and I hope to help you understand what it means. Before we get into that, just two things. First, I want to remind you that next week, Sunday night, we have a congregational meeting. For those of you who are members here, we would uh, expect you to be here to hear what's happening in our church next year. Um, and also so you can vote to affirm a number of very important things related to our church governance and uh, elders and uh, deacons and such. And then also uh, Thanksgiving Eve, we're going to have a, a service here at 6 o'clock, a uh, service designed by our pastoral residents, and uh, one of our younger guys will be preaching that evening. It'll be different than we have in the years past, a uh, different kind of service, very simple, and uh, would love to have you come and invite your uh, family members if they're in town. You'll be blessed, and it'll be a great time of uh, worship as we gather around the holidays. So Thanksgiving Eve, that's November the 26th, all right? Let's pray. Ask the Lord to help us. Father, we um, are laying before our eyes a passage that has so much help in it, but it is hard for us to understand. And so I pray that you help me to make it clear and and give the people who listen today um, the ability to think clearly about what the Scriptures are saying and then help us to know how we are 
are to respond. For at the end of the day, this text is in the Bible for the purpose of giving us help. And so we pray that you would help us today. Help us to hate sin, to pursue righteousness, and to do it for the rest of our lives. So would would you, Holy Spirit, make that a reality today, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. One of the reasons why I love the book of Romans so much is that, like many of Paul's other letters, but really unlike any of them, he applies big, sweeping theological concepts in a very practical way. He does that in other books like Philippians and Ephesians, but none like Romans. In Romans, Paul talks about some unbelievably great and glorious truths, and then what's really exciting is he helps us to know how those truths are supposed to live, how they're supposed to work. We've seen already in like Romans chapter 6 that part of the tension with those big sweeping theological issues is so how do you actually make this work? For instance, in Romans 6, the idea was this. So if you've been granted immunity by God for all of your sins, like he's covered your past, present, and future sins, and they've all been wiped away, and you cannot possibly fall outside of his love, then what's to prevent people from just sinning and sinning and sinning? Right? So it's a theological reality brought into the world in which we live. Here's another one. How does the death of someone 2,000 years ago on a cross and him being dead to sin and then alive then relate practically to people who live in 2014? Again, big sweeping theological idea brought to bear on where we live every day. Or how does the problem of sin, our desires, and the individual parts of our body collude together and make us, in effect, slaves of sin, when if you're a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to be a slave of righteousness. You see, these are the ideas that Paul is talking about, big sweeping theological ideas that are not meant just to be in a seminary textbook or in a theological book. They are meant to work. Like they're meant to work in an hour. And that's what Paul, I think, does, especially in Romans chapter 7. In chapter 7, in last week, we saw that Paul tried to answer a question. And in light of the fact that he talks so much about us being, about believers being dead to the law, the question was then this, so what does it mean to be dead to the law? And we concluded last week in verse 6, where we learned that we no longer serve in an old written code sort of way, but we live in the new life of the Spirit. And last week we talked about the Holy Spirit, and I heard from a number of you how helpful and refreshing it was to talk about this third person of the Trinity that we so often neglect. And I promise you we'll come back to that theme in January when we talk about Romans 8, because Romans 8 is full of content about the beautiful work of the Holy Spirit. Today we're in verses 7 through 20 in Romans chapter 7, and Paul asks two questions about the law in this text. The first question is found in verse 7, where he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? That is the first question. The second question is found in verse 13, where it says, did that which is good then bring death to me? And so what Paul's going to do is help us understand a very important connection. The connection between the law, the problem of sin, and our humanity. Or let me make it maybe a little more practical. Paul's going to try and help us understand what is the connection between rules that are outside of me, my human everyday experience, and the problem of indwelling sin. How does all of that work together? And that's 
really an important question because that's where we live every single day of our lives. Even if you're not a believer, you have external rules. You have something broken inside of you. You know it. And the question is, what in the world are you going to do about it? So this is a, a question that's relevant for all of us. And what Paul does is he starts out by talking about the law. And he wants us to know that the law is the presentation problem. If you're a counselor or if you're taking any of our counseling classes, our growing classes, you will know that one of the things you need to work through is the difference between a presentation problem, what somebody says the problem is, and then what the real problem is underneath. And Paul would tell you that if you think the law is the problem, it's not. It's just the presentation problem. There's another problem underneath. And essentially what this text says and all of its complication and everything else, here's the main thought of of Romans 7, 7 to 20, and it's this, sin through the law and in me, that's the problem. So when I go through this message, and at some point in time you're, you're a little lost, that probably will be, uh, I will probably be lost in my own sermon. Okay, so uh, that's okay, just as long as I'm not bored with my own sermon, right? So um, keep this thought in mind that sin through the law and in me, that's, that's the problem. Okay, that's what this text is all about. So before we get into the specifics, we're going to walk line by line, verse by verse. There's one important question just to address from the front end of this message, and it's this. Is Romans 7 referring to an unbeliever or to a believer? So as Paul reflects on his life, the question is, from an interpretive standpoint, is he looking back, talking about his experience as an unbeliever, Or is he looking at his life at present and describing his struggle as a believer? And you need to know that there are a a wide swath of people in both camps as to how this text is viewed. There's probably different people within our own church who have differing views on this. And at the end of the day, they both arrive at the same conclusion, which is that neither the law neither justifies nor sanctifies. At the end of the day, whether it's referring to a believer or unbeliever, the end game in Romans chapter 8 and in Romans chapter 7 verses 21 to 25 is the same. You need Christ to help you. That said, I think it's referring to Paul as a believer. And I I think that for a couple reasons. One, he writes in the present tense and also constantly referring to himself in the first person. Secondly, he refers to the law of God and his delight in it, which seems a bit odd if he's an unbeliever. He expresses antagonism against his sin. He hates his sin. He doesn't want to sin. That doesn't seem to fit with an unbelieving mindset. He expresses Christian hope like he's already, he already knows what the solution is. He, as well, he, this, this idea of struggle in the Christian life harmonizes well with Paul's um, teaching in other books, especially like the book of Galatians. And, and here's the other thing. I think it flows really well from Romans 6, talking about what it means to be free in Christ. And Romans 7 just kind of continues that dialogue, while at the same time recognizing that this freedom is not without an enormous amount of battle and struggle. So, all of that to say... What Paul is talking about here is this, that the Christian life at the end of the day is a battle. Now that needs to be countered with the fact that Romans 6 has said we're dead to sin and alive to Christ. So there are positional realities that we need to embrace. Lest you read Romans 7 and say, awesome, I can live a defeated Christian life and and, and that's where I should stay. That's not what this text is saying. At the same time, this text also blows out of the water any idea that real Christians... Don't battle sin, and they don't fail. 
So you need both sides, a, a, a balanced view of what the Christian life really is all about. There's two things in this text that I want to show you first in verses 7 to 12 and then in 13 to 20. Here's the first thing, it's this, that sin makes the law an ally. That sin makes the law an ally. So while it's true that the believer has died to the law, that's what chapter 7 and verse 4 said. He says, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Jesus. Well, that's true. And while the law aroused sinful passions, that's chapter 7 and verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. So the law does all of these things. We're dead to it. It, arou- it causes sinful passions to surface. The problem, Paul says, though, is not the law. The law is not sin. So what, it, what exactly does the law do then, and how does it interact with sin in our own humanity? Here's five things. The first is that the law defines sin rather than creating it. So the law doesn't create sin, but it does define it. And let's look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If, I, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul had no idea what sin is, but he means that the law somehow was a catalyst for him to understand sin in a whole different way. And then he says this, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, think of this for a moment with me. Why would he use the, the, the tenth commandment about covetousness? Why not use murder or... Adultery or lying. Why, why covetousness? Why covetousness to drive home this point about the law using or sin using the law as an ally? Here's why. First, because covetousness is a, a broad summarizing sort of sin. One could argue that the entire Old Testament Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are really at their root all about covetousness. But as well, of all of the Ten Commandments, it's covetousness that is the most heart-based of all of them. Covetousness, now Jesus defines um, adultery in in heart-based concepts. He defines murder in heart-based concepts. But not like we find already in in the Old Testament with covetousness, that there's a heart-based reality that's taking place. And Paul says that he would not have known what covetousness is. He wouldn't have known the extent to which it could invade his heart had the law not said, you shall not covet. So what does the law do? The law serves to make sin clearer and bigger and more expansive. The law serves to define sin, not to create it. The law serves as a context for sin and a catalyst for sin. It changes how you view sin, but it doesn't create sin. In the same way that we teach our children, you, you, don't, you shouldn't want what other people have. You shouldn't be greedy. But do, you really, do they really know the full extent of that? No. As they grow older, suddenly now they understand the full extent of covetousness. I, I know covetousness in a different way that Savannah does. I mean, I know covetousness at an adult level. Maybe an illustration will help you. Um, when I was in college, I took a class on how to be a, a basketball official. I was a ref. And so after um, starting our first church, I did that on the side for a little bit. It was some exercise, had a lot of fun. The problem is, is that when you become a basketball official, it ruins how you view basketball for the rest of your life. <laughs> because you see the way that calls should be made. 
you, you know that when a guy runs down the court, he needs to be in the right position to make the call. So if he makes a bad call, everyone else just thinks it's a bad call. You see the fact that he should have been in the right spot. Or when he raises his hands to call the foul, you know that if it's a violation, his hand should be open. If it's a personal foul, it should be closed. And sometimes refs don't close their hands or open their hands at the right time. So my wife is like, is that a right foul or not? I'm like, I don't know. His hand was open. You know, so, I mean... <laughs> So the reality is it changes what you see. It affects, because of your understanding of the full extent of the law, suddenly now you see things through a very different lens. And that's what the law does. It doesn't create sin. Knowing the rules of basketball doesn't create the rules. But knowing them them creates now a catalyst to see them in full color. That's the point. That's what the law does as it relates to sin. So Paul would not want us to get down on the law. Like, if we just didn't have any law, then we would be good. No, the law isn't the problem. Secondly, the real problem is sin. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So what does Paul say here? Paul identifies for us that the real problem is not the law. No, no, no. The real problem is sin. And it's really important to see the language. He says, but sin, seizing an opportunity. How does sin seize an opportunity? It seizes an opportunity, notice this, through the commandment. Think, after all, of the first temptation in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. The devil comes to Eve. He tempts her. And what does he say to her? He says, in effect, did God say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. So central to Satan's temptation is the context of command. And even though the fruit is alluring to her eyes and she desires it and wants it, that's part of the temptation. But the other part of the temptation is that God has defined the boundaries. You see, part of the temptation is this desire to go outside of what God desires and wants. So rebellion requires restrictions. Meaning without restrictions, there there is no rebellion. And so the problem is not the law. The problem is sin. Number three, look at the latter part of verse 8 and verse 9. Paul says this, Apart from the law, sin lies dead. So what does sin do with the law? Sin comes alive through the law. Verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, it doesn't mean that sin was non-existent, that it was non-living. The idea of having it be dead is that it's dormant. And the idea is this, that when the commandment comes, suddenly now it, it surfaces sin at a whole new level. Because you know the extent of what sin could be. No longer is it lying dormant, but instead it is, it is waiting, in effect, to pounce. In fact, look ahead to verse 11, outside of the scope of this point, but see how it's illustrated here. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. You see? The idea is that sin can spring and surface in surprising ways. Isn't it amazing how you could be having just a wonderful family time and something happens and it's just like boom and the whole night is just like flushed because of a sin moment. Sin is, it, it, it's, it's, it's waiting to pounce or as in Genesis Chapter 4, God said this to Cain, that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. 
The idea is that sin is lying dormant, and a law comes, and it causes sin to come alive. When I think of dormancy and alive, I think in my childhood, one of my favorite things to do as a kid was to grab a slingshot and find a big hornet's nest on the top of a tree or in a light pole and just hang out with my friends and just go, ah, rats, rats. And then run, right, as fast as you can. Why? Because when you penetrate that hornet's nest, it was there and it was alive, but it's not alive like it is when a rock has gone right straight through the heart of that hornet's nest. And that's what the law does, is the law surfaces issues that are happening within us. Some of you figured this out. You never, I mean, you knew you had challenges with authority and then you got your first real boss. I mean, you thought the problem was your dad. You were like, if I should get a, my dad, he's just like so hard on me. And then you got your first boss and you're like, daddy. I mean, right? You wanted to go back, right? And what you realize is it's not the authority. It's not the person. It's not even the principle. There's something inside of you that's just like, you tell me to do this. I don't want to do this. I want to do this my way. Some of you realize that's when you got married. You never, you had no idea how selfish you were until you got married. Right? And then all of a sudden it's coming out. Who gets more covers or not? And I mean, just the other night my wife and I were like, give me some covers, you know, and freezing, right? What do you want to do tonight? I don't know. What do you want to do? Really? I mean, just all of these, 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 these self-centered, you gotta blend your life with somebody else. The problem is not all of those circumstances. The problem, there's something wrong with us. That's what Paul is driving at. Number four, verse 10. Sin brings death through the law. The very commandment that promised life, verse 10, proved to be death to me. I mean, it's, Paul says, I, I, I pursued the commandment. I thought it was going to bring life, and instead it brought death. Does that mean the law is bad? Paul would say, no. What's the problem? Sin, verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. That's the point. Paul's not saying that the law is bad. The law, in fact, is good if it's used properly. The law was able to define God's righteous standard. It was to identify how God wanted his people to live. I mean, the beautiful thing about heaven is there will be absolute rule and reign of God, and you will love it. It'll be the best thing in all the universe. But here on the earth, we're stuck because the law promises life through its alignment with God's character. But sin enters in, and the law then ends up being an instrument of death because sin uses it that way. It's, it's like a, a life-giving medicine that could be really helpful at one level that becomes incredibly destructive at another. Take, for instance, um, morphine. 1804 was invented World Health Organization identifies morphine as one of the most important drugs of a number of drugs that need to be part of a good health care system. I mean, in the Civil War, morphine was the only thing a soldier had when they were getting ready to amputate a leg or, or deal with a wound of some kind. But by the mid-1800s and the 1900s, morphine addiction was through the roof. As people used something that could have given life and could have been helpful, and now it became their addiction. How many of you remember watching Little House on the Prairie? Remember the scene in Elbert? Remember that? 
remember watching that as a kid, like freaking out, like what's his issue, right? I had no idea people could get addicted to, to medications and things like, like, like that. And here is Albert, who's absolutely addicted to something that could have, and at one point was helpful to him. I think he broke a leg or something of that sort and then became addicted to this substance. And so the law is something that's good, but if used improperly, can become a means of death. Verse 12 is the conclusion. So what does Paul say? He says, at the end of the day, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The commandment I think he's referring there to is the commandment regarding you shall not covet. So all of that to say, Paul is identifying for us, don't you dare blame the law. The title of the message today was, is the law good or bad or what? And the answer is, the law is good. The reason that we need to hear this is because the law becomes an unintended ally with sin, but the law isn't the problem our sin is. The fact of the matter is, church, we as human beings are very astute blame shifters. It began in the garden. It was Adam's fault. What? Did you hear that? So I said, we're very astute blame shifters. It was Adam's fault. Anyways, you'll go home and get that. So, <laughs> Thanks, Dale. Let's appreciate that. However, we make big mistakes when we blame other things. We, it's way too easy to blame an annoying law or an inconsistent rule, or an unfair boss, or an ineffective teacher. You want to test this, parents? The first time you get a bad report on your little bambino from the Sunday school department or from somebody at school, your first thought will be, well, what'd they do wrong? Because my little angel is perfect. Like me, right? (laughs) Actually, the real issue going on there, because you know you're not perfect, the real issue is you're worried about what that says about you. Oh, man, they'll think I'm an imperfect parent. Newsflash. They already knew that. Everyone knows that, right? And yet we get so hung up on that. So what do we do? We blame this and blame that and blame this and blame that. When the reality is those things are not the problem. The problem underneath the problem is our sin. So sin uses the law as an ally. Here's the second thing. And is that sin creates disobedience to the law. That's verses 7 to 12, now verses 13 to 20. Paul shifts, now, now just not talking about the law in terms of the externality of the law. Now he's going to move more internal. So verse 13 he says, Did that which is good, meaning the law, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order, here's why he says all this, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So what's he saying here? He's saying this, that the sinfulness of sin is revealed through disobedience to the law. So the law isn't bad, it sets the context, and what happens is that sin is revealed by our disobedience to the law, and we realize how bad sin really is. In fact, if you understand this text, my hope and my prayer is you'll leave today with a new abhorrence, at least for today, of sin in your life and in the world. That you will realize, man, sin is a big problem. 
Paul says that the law reveals the sinfulness of sin. What, what happens is the law shows us how really bad our sin is because we are, we are prone to minimize our sin, aren't we? It's like a, a guy who, who robs um, a store with a gun. And the news you hear about this one event, and often he's charged with multiple counts, right? So there's one crime. He robbed a store, but there's multiple counts. Or you can think of it from a... That's what the law does. It shows us the multiplicity of our sinfulness and how bad we really are. Or you can think of the law this way. If you could think of like your worst emotional blow-up or fight that you've ever had with somebody you love, maybe a friend, a spouse, family member, the law doesn't get, let you get away with just saying, yeah, we had a fight. The law would say, no, 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 no. What you had was sinful words, sarcastic tones, refusing to listen, hypocritical judgment, selfishness, slammed doors, angry action, bitterness, and an unforgiving spirit. That's what you had. Yeah, that's what we had. You had a fight. The law adds, counts to our sin. It serves to clarify what is truly sinful, and it serves to magnify the full scope of our error. Finally, and then we'll move to application, this sin then produces disobedience in the flesh. Now verses 14 to 20, as Al read our text, that's the the section that it begins to sound Less like scripture and more like an Abbott and Costello who's on first sort of routine. It's just, it's like, what, what is, what's, what is this about? Let me try and walk you through this. In order to understand 14 to 20, you have to see the word no twice. The word K-N-O-W in verse 14, that's the first confession. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. That's the first one. The second one is found in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And what Paul does, in fitting with our the main thought for today, that sin through the law and in me is the problem, what Paul does in verse 14 is, is expect to say, I know that the law is spiritual, but I'm not. And then in verse 20 to say, and I also know that in me there's nothing good. Those are the two confessions that he makes about his internal problem with sin. Let me unpack this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Paul essentially just identifies the law is spiritual, the law is holy, the problem is that I'm not. So he starts at a very basic level. When he says that he's sold under sin, he's not negating what he said in Romans chapter 6 about being dead to sin and alive to Christ. Instead, what he's saying is that by my actions, I keep doing the things that I know I'm not supposed to do. So I keep selling myself, I I, I keep doing things that fit the reign and rule of someone who really shouldn't have rule and control over me. Then verse 15, he moves to a point of self-analysis. He says, I do not understand my own actions. So he's taking a look inside of himself. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This is simply, Paul says this, look, I I don't like the stuff that I do. I know I should be doing this stuff. I want to do this stuff. And at the same time, I don't do that. Instead, I do the stuff I know I'm not supposed to do. So Paul lives in the world that you live in. I mean, you've had that, right? I know I'm supposed to do this. I know what is going to happen over here if I do this, but I do this anyways. And Paul is like, what is up with me? Verse 16. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Why, why is the law good? Because it shows Paul how wrong he is when he does the things he knows he's not supposed to do. So the law shines a light on him and says, Paul, what are you doing over here? He's like, ah, I didn't want to do this, but I did it anyways. And I know I shouldn't do it, but I did it. So the law shines a spotlight on That's what verse 15 and 16 is all about. And then verse 17 So he's asking himself, so why do I do this? Verse 17, so it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul is not excusing himself as if, well, it's not really me, it's this other me. He's not saying I have a friend who does a lot of sin. No, what Paul is saying is this, there's something wrong with me. That's what he's saying. There's something going on inside of me. There's a battle. There's a war. I feel divided. Like, I know I'm supposed to do this, and I'm not supposed to do this, but I do this, and I do this. I can't believe that I did this. So where does this junk come from? That's what Paul's wrestling with, and everyone in this room has asked that question. You have a horrible thought that runs through your mind. You're like, where did that come from? Or you take an action step, and you're like, I can't even believe. I knew what would happen if I did it, but I did it again. Where does it come from? Paul says it comes from inside. There's something wrong. Even if you're not a believer in Jesus, even if you don't believe the Bible is true, you've had that experience. Because intellectually, somewhere in your brain, you know there's good stuff, there's bad stuff, and you know that there's bad things that you shouldn't do, and yet you still do it, and you wake up the next morning, and you think, why do I do that? That's what Paul is talking about in the context of our human experience, and it still follows you even after you have a personal relationship with Jesus. That battle changes, but that fundamental fabric of battling is still the same. Verse 17, so it's no no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. There's the problem. Paul gets to indwelling sin. Sounds very similar to what he says in Galatians chapter 5, 17, where he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, They oppose each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. All right, now verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So there's another statement. His first confession was the law is good, I'm not. Now he says, I know that in my flesh there is absolute bankruptcy and absolute powerlessness. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. You know what I have seen in my lifetime? I've experienced it personally. You know when somebody is just about to be set free, when they come to the conclusion, I cannot fix this on my own. Somebody comes to faith in Christ. You know how you come? You know how you become a believer? When you wake up to this reality, your biggest problem in life is you. When you realize, I I cannot, I, I give up. So Paul says... Not just in his conversion, but even as he struggles with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So Paul's looking at himself and he's saying, why do I keep on doing the things that I know I'm not supposed to do? And then verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul has said all of this to help us to realize that the problem is not the law. The problem are not the things outside of us. The problem is on the inside. Paul is not excusing his own actions, but rather he is identifying with great clarity what the real problem is. Why do people disobey the law? 
Is it because the law is bad or unfair? No, that's not why. It's because they disobey the law because of the presence of evil within them, the presence of sin in the life of human beings. And even Christians, after they've come to faith in Christ, after they've been forgiven, and after they've been freed from the rule and reign of sin, they still struggle with this internal battle. Now, they can fight that battle differently, but the fact of the matter is they still struggle and they still fight. So therefore, are we to conclude that the law is bad? No, absolutely not. The law isn't bad. The law isn't the problem. Sin instead uses the law, colludes with our flesh, breaks the law, and creates disobedience. That sin through the law and in me, that's the real problem. That's what this text means. Let me apply it. How does this work? What does this mean? Here's what I have prayed for us that we would get this morning. It's this. First and foremost, I want you to be reminded today that sin is our enemy. As we've walked through the text, as we've talked about the law and specifically about the undergirding issue of sin, I hope that something inside of you emotionally is happening as it relates to sin. I hope that there's some level of a new hatred for sin or a new awareness of the problem of sin inside of you. I hope you see sin for what it really is, that you see it in this text, that with all of the allurement that the world offers and all the things that temptations would beg you and woo you to come their direction, the fact of the matter is, is sin is always stalking us. It's not a pet. It can't be domesticated. It's a threat that sin stalks us, it deceives us, it pounces on us, it uses us, it breaks us, and it kills us. It takes good things, things that were meant to define the righteousness of God. It takes beautiful things that were meant to be gifts of God, and it injects it with evil purposes so that good things become bad things. It can take a great marriage and ruin it because of sin. It can take a family united around the beauty of who and what Christ is and ruin them because of the presence of sin. It can take a church and friendships and a a business career it can take your own mind. It can ruin your mind because of the wooing warfare of the negative impact of sin in your life. So brothers and sisters, you need to see sin is our enemy and we must fight it with all of our might. If you were raised in a home where your parents were on this and they talked to you about sin, and I'm sure they didn't do it perfectly, and sometimes they may have even done it legalistically, but at least they helped you understand in the world there is good and evil, there is sin and there is righteousness. At least they helped you to understand how bad sin can really be. If you're a child and you're being raised in a home where your parents are leaning into this matter of sin in your life, what your parents want you to hear and what they want you to see is the fact that with age you see the consequences of sin in the lives of other people. You've seen the effects of poor kids. How many times I've come to a dinner table at night and I've sat down and I've looked at them and I said, boys, just please be righteous. Please. Just don't, just follow hard after Jesus. And they're like, Dad, what's going on? I'm like, I can't tell you. But please, just be righteous. Because I've seen it. I've seen the effects. I've seen what sin does. I've seen the consequences. And so we need to realize that sin fundamentally is our enemy. The pain, the misery that it causes. Even if you're not a believer, 
Even if you don't believe the Bible to be true, you can look around the world, you see the consequence of evil in the world, don't you? The Bible tells us that that problem of sin, it destroys everything. And Romans 7 reminds us that sin is not just the foe for the entire world, it is the reason why Jesus died, and it is still the foe of the follower of Jesus, and they must fight it with every fiber in their being. Secondly, this text reminds us and calls us to look below the surface. It's a refreshing reminder that there are issues in life, and then there are issues underneath the issues. And it's been good to see Paul talk about the law and then get underneath the, 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 the issue to what's really going on. Because, listen, we are way too quick to blame the system, the government, our biology, the employer, our spouse, the kids, or the circumstances, when the reality is those things are not really our problem. They are just the means of exposing what is really going on inside of us. If you really hate sin... And if you are really alarmed by it, then you will be grateful, not spiteful or depressed when sin is revealed in your life. If you really hate sin, you, you want it to be dealt with more than you want to maintain this image that everybody has of me. When it's surfaced in the lives of your children or your grandchildren, rather than longing for this, this, this beautiful home where nobody ever sins and they always just get along, instead to realize, thank God we can see what's really going on inside of their hearts. Because you know there's some parents who just don't want to know. They want to ask a, a penetrating question to ask what's really going on and what's, what are you really doing? And what's, because they really don't want to know. Why? Because they'd rather maintain appearances and plausible deniability and then really get into the reality of sin. And here's why. Because they're not of afraid of sin as they are of afraid of having their little bubble world popped. We gotta get below the surface. Not be a place that's marked by Fake smiles and chipper greetings when the reality is our hearts are far away from God. For some of you who came here today and you are a million miles away and you've come and you've looked like everything's okie dokie. And the reality is it is not. And you're here under this text for a reason. Here's the third. The third application is this, is that the Christian life is a struggle. One of the most hopeful things about this passage and others in the New Testament is the vision of what the Christian life is supposed to be. So, what's your vision? What, what, what do you think real Christianity is? Think of it this way. Think of it like an illustration of an escalator. Think of the world and its system as an escalator that's going down. And people in the world who are not followers of Jesus are riding that escalator and they're partying all the way down. They're singing and laughing and carrying on and carousing. Meanwhile, that long escalator is just... And they don't know that the end result of that escalator ride is judgment before God. And they're riding the escalator. So that's, that's the, the problem. What's your image of the Christian life? For many people, it's a reverse escalator. They're riding up. 
They're singing, they're carrying on, having a great time, and the escalators just carrying them all the way up to heaven. And in their mind, a vision of really nailing it when it comes to being a Christian is the fact that you're just kind of coasting in the abundant life, the beautiful life that God has always wanted you to have, and you're kind of just floating all the way up to heaven with happiness and joy and peace. That's their vision of Christianity. That is not the vision of Romans 7. That's a devastating vision. Because if you're not coasting, if you're not floating, if you're not nailing it, if you're not perfect, so to speak, you begin to think that you're not really a follower of Jesus. You expect other people to be perfect, and you create this unrealistic world that nobody really lives in, but we all act as if we really live in it. You know what real Christianity is? Real Christianity is an escalator that is pulling us down. We live in the world, but here's the deal. While there are lost people around us and the pull of temptation is strong, the real vision of Christianity is you are walking up the down escalator. You're going, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, and you are fighting and fighting, and then you lose your breath and you fail and you're going backwards. You're like, no! And you go back up. And when you get discouraged and you think, oh no, I can't do this anymore, then you hear God's words over you, which are, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it wakes you up. That's right. This is heading the wrong direction. And you're climbing up and up and up. And you grab your kids and you're like, come on, we're going to march. We're going to walk. We're going to keep going, keep going. And you come to the assembly of Christ together on the Lord's day. And the reason that you're here is so that people can sing words over you and tell you, you cannot quit. You can't give up. Even though you failed 10 times, you have to keep going. And there's no excuse for you just to keep falling back into your sin. But brother, you cannot quit. You cannot throw in the towel and say, this is who I am. I give in to my sin. I'm just going to ride the escalator later all the way down. We pull you up and say, no, we're going to march till Jesus comes. We're going to fight till he comes and we're going to walk all the way to the end because Christ is our King. So Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Enter, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So with my mind I serve the law of sin, but with my flesh I, or from my mind I serve the law of God, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that when you're weary, suddenly you're like, I got new strength. God help me, and I keep walking, I keep walking, I keep walking, I keep walking. So for some of you, you've, you've bought into a lie. And that lie is real Christians are perfect. There's nobody like that. And because of that, you've convinced yourself, this is just a sin that I'm going to have to do for the rest of my life. And because of that, I'm just... I'm just going to give in to it. And the point of this text is this. No, you keep fighting and fighting and you never stop and you never use it as an excuse, but you realize that we are never going to be perfect and we never give in to defeat. And between those two positions, we say, help us, Lord, to keep walking and not quit. Because the law isn't the problem. The escalator's not the problem. All the people in the way aren't the problem. The problem is me, and I'm asking you to help me to keep on walking and keep on fighting. Father, help us to never, ever, ever give up. To never quit. And to realize that the Pursuit of Christ's likeness is something that we must pursue together and help one another in. And as we close and sing a confession of our faith, help us to sing as people who are committed to fighting and never quitting.
Thank you that over us are sweeping theological realities that make that fight possible. And so help us to live that way. Help us to parent that way. Help us to shepherd that way. Help us to lead this church that way so that our aim and our mission is a passionate pursuit of you, Jesus, that never ends and never quits until you come or until we die. So give us grace because the battle is real and sin is costly and the devil wants to pounce. So help us, Lord. Help us to fight and never quit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.